This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. It's been a pretty grim week for many, many reasons. Uh, But in the Middle East, in Palestine, we've seen the killing of Shireen Abu Akhla, an iconic, and I think it really needs to be emphasised, an iconic journalist who works for Al Jazeera. If you speak to anyone in the Middle East, they will say that they grew up often watching her news reports. Uh, It's almost impossible to separate her from the way that people across the Middle East understand particularly what's happening, of course, in Palestine. Now, she was shot dead by Israeli forces. That, of course, was sickening enough. But what we then saw was her funeral being attacked by Israeli police. I think it's just worth just having a quick look. We've got some of the footage. Some of you may have seen this. I'm not going to show the footage of a shooting, um, which is obviously extremely distressing, and many of you will have seen it already. But look, just for those, obviously, people listening to the podcast, you'll just hear the music. But let's just have a look at a close-up of what happened with her pallbearers and her coffin during the funeral. Really shocking stuff. And the Israeli narrative that, for example, the pallbearers were throwing rocks, etc., not borne out at all. In fact, the footage has been repeatedly dissected and analysed. Obviously, we live in a world now where people can use social media and share these videos and then analyse them themselves. Just doesn't bear out the official Israeli narrative at all. I think it's quite striking, actually, that even people who've been often quite reticent to criticise Israel, the occupation, certainly not the apartheid system, which uh, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International and Betzalem have documented, have actually come out and condemned it. So it's, I mean, the fact that we've seen the shooting dead of an iconic uh, journalist and then the attack on a funeral was obviously too much even for some defenders of Israel to to, to stomach. Now, we've got two brilliant guests, um, live from Ramallah and Tel Aviv, who are about to bring in. Uh, just as ever, thanks everyone for watching the show. Do you click through the YouTube link if you're watching live and press like and subscribe. You can support us on patreon.com forward slash Jones 84 That's how we keep the show on the road. That's how we do the documentaries and all the brilliant, uh, I say brilliant interviews because of the interviewees, not because of myself. Um, and we've got a video, for example, going up with George Mombio, brilliant journalist. He's got a new book, which is about the food crisis, which uh, is afflicting, of course, much of uh, human civilization. So we'll have, I think, that video up tomorrow or Tuesday. Um, you can also use Super Chat on YouTube to support the show and put questions to the guests. And, of course, listen on the podcast. Many of you listen to this on the podcast and do download and support. That's enough of me babbling. Let's bring in our two brilliant guests. Uh, Salem Barrowman, uh, Barrowman, sorry, apologies, uh, the executive uh, director of Rabbit and Sarit Michaeli, who is, I've just mentioned Betzalem, which is an Israeli, an extremely brave Israeli human rights organization, which document uh, 
the abuses committed by the occupying forces in Palestine. Um, it's great to see you both. How are you both doing? Thank you. Great to see you. Good, good. Thank you for having us on. Salam, actually, can I just start with you? I think just for a kind of a Western audience, I think it's just worth just explaining who Shireen Abu Akhla was. Um, because obviously a lot of people were shocked by what they saw and heard, but that was the first mm. time they'd heard of her. So can you just explain, I mean, who was she and just how shocked, I suppose, are people in Palestine and beyond at her killing? Yeah, absolutely. I, I just want to start by, um, I think, commemorating the significance of today. Today is May 15th. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the 74th anniversary of the Nakba, which which means catastrophe in Arabic. It's um, when hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from Palestine and were forced into exile uh, with the creation of the State of Israel. And it's, it's crazy how since then, the Nakba wasn't just a single event, but a, a continuum of catastrophes that we face today. Um, you know, with the killing of, of Shireen Abu Akhle just being one example. Uh, Shireen has been gracing our TVs, has been the voice of Palestinians for over 25 years. I was a child when I first saw Shireen, and she came to prominence during the second and the fall of the early 2000s, which was the second major Palestinian uprising over the last 30 years. And she she was an icon. She was in every household, not only in Palestine, but in, in the entire Middle East. And uh, she felt like a, a sister, like a cousin, like a friend. There was a familiarity, there was an affinity that we had to her, all of us did. And she was a national symbol for us. And uh, she had the longest funeral uh, for any Palestinian that I've seen to date, she was beloved, uh, you know, she was killed, murdered, executed in cold blood in Janine, and her funerals went from city to city and thousands came out to honor her and mourn her and, and grieve her, her killing by Israel. Uh, we, lo we lost an incredible person uh, and an, an incredible journalist. And it just shows you, I think, the, the, the brutality of Israeli apartheid and the length it goes to to, to not only kill journalists, but also, I think, very much try to erase any form of Palestinian expression of resistance, um, even by telling stories. And there was this quote that came out that was very powerful, and it said, uh, you know, they were armed with cameras, armed with cameras. And that, that sentence uh, really resonated with a lot of us, just for telling our story um you know that is enough to get you a death sentence sorry what what do we i mean in terms of the israeli narrative the, the what they've said since what does i mean in terms of the the gap between what israel has said happened and what actually happened so the first, I mean, I think the bottom line of what we know right now is something published uh, by actually by Israeli media uh, on Friday night, which is that internally in internal considerations with the kind of like high ranking uh, military leadership, there is a um, kind of like an internal acknowledgement that the likelihood of the Israeli uh, army hitting Shirin is, is quite reasonable, right? This is an Israeli uh, media quote. It's not uh, a telling pronouncement. Mm -hmm. uh, I think if we really describe it very, very broadly, and I, of course, I'm, I'm kind of talking about all of Israeli media, including social media, you could probably say that in the beginning, the kind of knee-jerk reaction from the Israeli uh, establishment, uh, so the military, but also kind of like mainstream uh, uh, spokespeople, uh, was uh, trying to simply kind of like dive you know, divert attention, say it was uh, quite likely that Palestinian armed, that armed Palestinians hit you in, uh, on the basis of uh, essentially unrelated video that emerged from the scene. And I think this uh, was uh, debunked and the Israeli authorities had to retract that uh, direction. Since then, what we've seen in the mainstream Israeli discourses are two essential statements. The first is, we might never know, right? We might never know the real facts, who killed her again, attempting to muddy the water. The second thing we see from extremely prominent Israeli commentators, so not these kind of like just these extremists um, in the Israeli uh, extreme right, but mainstream commentators, uh, you know, it's basically like, um, you know, Salem described, she was, um, 
she was a, a hostile a, a propagandist. She was anti-Semite. She had she was accompanying terrorists in their attacks against us. So minimizing, belittling, uh, uh, basically saying it's irrelevant whether Israel uh, uh, killed uh, Shirin Abu Akleh uh, because she was an enemy and kind of like the killing was meaningless. This is what we hear, uh, unfortunately, from very large parts of Israeli society. I should also mention there is certainly a um, probably a minority uh, perspective that calls for proper truthful uh, investigations and also discusses the really radically different understanding by Israelis and primarily Israeli Jews of who she was, mm -hmm. right? Who don't really know the meaning this has for Palestinians and don't particularly want to know m many of them. I mean, Salem, before we talk just about wider issues, it's, it's pretty universally understood across different cultures and religions about I suppose the sanctity, the kind of sacred nature of a funeral. So can you just explain that, I mean, the, the, the kind of shock, I suppose, that people having, you know, in, in Palestine, having seen those attacks, I mean, I suppose many of them are not accustomed, but maybe they're not as shocked by the way the Israeli forces behaved as may, maybe people in the West who unfortunately partly because of the failures of our own media, don't see the actual reality of the occupation. But can you just tell me the, what, what's the kind of mood at the moment? You know, when you grow up in Palestine, when you live in Palestine, uh, severe acts of violence sadly become very normalized because they are part of our everyday lives. Uh, but to see Israeli police beat and attack pallbearers at the funeral of an icon in Jerusalem um, shocked us all. I think it was an, an, another level uh, of, of violence that we have yet to be seen. And I think it's also, just think about the impunity in which Israel knows the entire world is watching. Yeah. and. And even then, they go and 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 attack and viciously attack the funeral procession. They rip Palestinian flags off the hearse that was carrying the coffin. Um, I think it was a very traumatizing um, thing to see. And even when you played the video at the beginning uh, of 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 the show, and I've seen it multiple times already, it's still something that is deeply disturbing and, and shocking to me. Um, but but one thing, Owen, you know, you know, speaking about the Nekbe and how it's a continuum of catastrophes, every Palestinian, every generation has been traumatized by severe events of violence. And we think that those moments, those events are going to be watershed moments in mobilizing the world to try to end apartheid. And often they're not. Um, they're met with empty words and inaction and, and also really terrible media coverage. You know, there were the, 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 the BBC, the BBC and other media outlets were covering an attack on the pallbearers as clashes. It's, it was mind boggling to see. And, and there were statements that ranged in, in severity in terms of what happened, but no government has has taken any form of action, and you know it's to to me as a Palestinian, I ask myself, what is it going to take? Hmm. What what is what what does Israel have to do for the world to move? And and if it's not what we saw the other day, then sometimes I question the the normalization of the suffering of Palestinians to the extent it has. I mean, uh, Sarah, do you think it's the case that, you know, because as I said, there was genuine shock about the attack on the funeral and the pallbearers. Is it the case, and you're, you know, you dedicate your life, your work to exposing the often just horrific, uh, brutal crimes and injustices committed by the occupation, uh, very courageous given the atmosphere in which you, you have to operate. But is it the case, you think, that Israel knows it can, basically act with impunity that there may be some politicians in the west will maybe in this particular case say they're disturbed or whatever 
but no actions taken. Israel knows it can behave in this way because there will be no consequences. Well, I can tell you what I felt, the kind of shock I felt when I saw these images for the first time. To be perfectly honest with you, I was totally unshocked by the images themselves, but I was shocked by how um, Israeli decision makers and certainly even police leadership who only think about these incidents uh, from the perspective of what it would mean with our international standing, right? on the PR level, essentially, what will the optics mean that they did not consider this to be a massively, you know, self-defeating attack. I have seen, I've experienced personally, certainly I've seen by through the media and uh, I've kind of like been in situations where Israeli soldiers acted in this, soldiers and police officers and border police officers have acted this way. I don't think any Palestinian has never, hasn't experienced this. And certainly Israelis who are, uh, uh, Kind of like engaged with documenting the occupation experience it all the time so it's it was certainly not a bug uh, not a bug it's a feature right of the way israeli police behave in east jerusalem the the kind of uh, dehumanization the kind of brutality uh, versus any kind of palestinian presence or palestinian kind of like even political protests uh, the, the notion that palestine you know that a funeral cannot be a political funeral why not it's a it's a totally reasonable action on behalf of people who want to express themselves. Um, and it's a very common thing internationally, certainly inside Israel, it's considered absolutely reasonable. Um, but no, the Israeli police decided that Palestinian mourners cannot express their uh, uh, their total uh, 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 mourning and, and, uh, and, and the horrific tragedy that uh, befell them uh, uh, in a political way, right? That's one example, but it happens throughout and it's, uh, you know, it's expressed in media coverage as well. So I think for me, the real issue was, and this is my kind of thinking of this, the fact that the Israeli government and those people making decisions did not even consider how bad it would look simply demonstrates how little any any of them feel uh, um, of a sense of any kind of accountability, right? It's very clear that um, commanders in the police, and even after the announcement of some sort of internal inquiry by the police, the, the, you know, the police uh, clarified that this will not lead to any actual measures, consequences against uh, police officers. So this is a clear thing. Why should an Israeli police officer who knows they can, they can get away with all of these actions uh, consider, you know, think twice about this? And this brings me, I think, to like the broader discussion um, because the funeral and the killing of Shirin uh, Abu Akleh are two separate uh, issues, obviously connected uh, uh, for everyone looking at them. But I think certainly when we look back to um, how the international community responded to the killing itself, you know, calling for an, for an investigation, some people urged Israel to investigate, but we all have to acknowledge that Israel has shown again and again over history that it is unwilling and unable to investigate properly in a, in a way that could actually lead to accountability, these killings. I mean, uh, you know, let's, uh, as Sarah's doing there, link it to the, to the, the, the wider context, Salem. I mean, as you've noted, this is the anniversary of the Nakba. So in terms of what's actually happened, I mean, as you say, decade upon decade of catastrophe or on top of catastrophe, this just being another example of yet another terrible crime committed. So, I mean, can you link it to what's actually happening on the ground with the occupation, the way that Israeli forces are behaving, what's happening in terms of Palestinians and their homes? I mean, there was footage that came out of uh, Israeli settlers storming a, taking a Palestinian home during the funeral itself. So can you just tell us what's happening on the ground and how this links what, what this horrific uh, set of events to what's actually happening in a wider context. Yeah, you know, it's you'd think that the the attacking of a funeral of a national icon uh, and beating up the pallbearers and harassing the mourners would be the only event uh, that happened that day. But as you said, there were illegal Israeli settlers settlers taking over. Palestinian homes in Hebron. There was a, a Palestinian family that was forced to demolish their own house in Jerusalem that set very same day. The Israelis, um, Israeli apartheid forces raided Janine refugee camp again. It was the same refugee camp which Shirin Abu Akleh and her 
colleagues were covering when she was killed. Um, and, and so the, 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 the violations, the violence is a daily constant occurrence on, on multi fronts. It happens all over historic Palestine. And it's, it, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. It comes at you from so many different directions. Um, you know, last year we had the, the, the unity intifada in response to, uh, you know, Israelis attacking worshippers in Al-Aqsa and, and trying to change the status of, of Jerusalem. And, and then we had Sheikh Jarrah and then we had Gaza. And we thought that something fundamentally changed after that because the world was watching. And, you know, Owen, almost everything that happened last year happened again this Ramadan in Jerusalem and all over Palestine. And it's, it's as if the, 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 the violence, the, the, the machine doesn't stop. Um, so it, 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 makes, it makes this uh, level of violence almost mundane. And Shireen spent her entire career trying to tell these stories uh, across Palestine. Uh, you know, Shireen was, was, there was a massacre in, in Jenin during the Second Intifada, and she was still back 25 years later, almost telling the same stories from Jenin, where she was killed. And it's because there's no accountability, fundamentally. There's no accountability to the system of apartheid. And no, no, no government from the from the international community is willing to take actions proportion, proportionate enough to the levels of violence we're seeing. Sanction. I mean, look at Ukraine, Owen. Look at Ukraine. The world mobilized immediately against Russia for violating the territorial integrity of another country, and Palestinians are dying every day. And and in terms of whether the media coverage, whether it's uh, governments mobilizing with sanctions, whether it's companies pulling out of Russia, that happened extremely quickly. But with Palestine, we're talking about the better half of a century, and no form of accountability has even come close to that. So there's fundamentally a double standard that exists in terms of the way the world treats us, and and that's the infuriating part. I mean, sorry, I mean, you've already referred to that broader context, but I mean, can you just in terms of what's actually happening, what you're documenting at the moment on the ground and how this links to that? Yeah, absolutely. And I do think it's it's a clear example of things that could potentially be uh, absolutely nipped in the bud, right? Israeli actions to, uh, um, for example, I think the most important example that is like really happening in this in this moment is that uh, the Israeli High Court legalized a military training zone in the southern Hebron Hills in an area called Masafiriata that could, if enacted by the Israeli military, lead to the forcible transfer of a thousand Palestinians from the immediate area and to untold damage to many other, uh, you know, uh, Palestinian communities in the in the region. We're talking about a small uh, group of uh, rural communities that uh, uh, subsist on herding. Those people are threatened both by this. It would be if if enacted, it would be the largest expulsion since I think 1967 of Palestinians. It would be an absolutely clear war crime. Um, the international community has made statements. We have to say 15 countries from the European Union made uh, statements uh, and calling on Israel to not enact it. But um, it seems absolutely clear that unless real uh, kind of red lines are drawn, if Israel moves ahead and, and uh, perpetrates this war crime, it seems uh, unlikely for the international community to actually go ahead and put its money where its mouth is. Um, I'm, you know, in East Jerusalem, only days ago, the same type of militarized police brutally uh, surrounded a uh, home and, and demolished it. Uh, five families lost their homes and several other neighborhoods. Uh, that was uh, in Silwan. Uh, on the same or the following day, three other homes were demolished in parts of East Jerusalem. The army has already uh, perpetrated uh, together with the civil administration a massive demolition in the same villages in Masafariata that are risking uh, a total forcible transfer. And this is happening uh, on a weekly and on a daily basis throughout Area C of the West Bank, right? The, uh, Israel is trying to take over these uh, areas uh, in order for the use for it to be uh, for them to be used to, for settlement expansion. And in fact, I mean, if we're talking about this kind of like conversation of 
the justification, the absurd justification of attacking a funeral procession because claiming that people threw stones. I mean, only on uh, Friday, uh, settlers attacked an Israeli-Palestinian protest in the southern Hebron Hills with stones and, you know, managed to get away with it, in, even though it happened literally in front of uh, Israeli soldiers. And this is one example of many. So this combination of unchecked violence with no accountability, with no ability of Palestinians to organize in any way to change their conditions, certainly not uh, through political activism, which is illegal, uh, and, and and not through actions within uh, NGOs, um, and, and protest, which is deemed completely unacceptable by, by the Israeli uh, authorities. This is a Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As I said, it's an ongoing reality. And I think uh, clearly um, no one is even considering in the international community, no one is even considering the prospect of actual consequences, individual systematic consequences uh, for, this, uh, for these violations. Yeah, I mean, just finally on that, that kind of links, I suppose, to the, the final point. I mean, Salem, it's, it's interesting if you look at the polling across the West, there has been actually quite, I would say, quite a dramatic shift in attitudes, uh, support, sympathy for the Palestinian people has has grown actually very substantially over the 2010s and now obviously in the, in the early 2020s compared to where it used to be, certainly. Now, you've seen Western governments having that, you know, they had very little choice but, but to say something given the gravity of what happened. But I suppose from your perspective, what's the gap, I suppose, between what, what they'll say when a sudden kind of impossible to ignore outrage happens based compared to actual deeds and what would you implore people in the west the kind of the demands that they should be putting on their own governments at the moment that's a that's a very critical conversation Owen. thank you for the question i think you know i i grew up uh listening to the international community and western governments recycle the same statements uh for over 30 years Anytime any sort of event happens, whether it's Israelis ethnically cleansing a Palestinian neighborhood or, or demolishing a home or building a settlement and colonizing Palestinian land, it's literally the same statement over and over and over again, devoid of any action. And if that's, and that's the gap. There isn't action that puts a cost on Israel's behavior uh, because internally within within uh, within you know domestic politics whether it's in the uk whether it's in germany whether it's in the us politicians have a lot to lose if they go beyond a, a, a well-crafted statement that maybe wags its finger at israel for for doing something violating international law committing a war crime and so i implore and i call on a lot of people who have come to support palestine and palestinians in our quest for liberation and freedom is that there, there's a gap between that public opinion and electoral politics. Uh, being able to influence and affect government policy uh, is still not there. And I think that's what's necessary. Sadly, we live in under a reality where policies made in London and Berlin and Washington DC and Paris affect the levels of freedoms and rights we have as Palestinians. And so we can't do this alone. You know, We're not asking you to liberate us, but help us. And that's, that's the type of solidarity we want to be. So put pressure on your politicians 
to come with policies that sanction or hold Israel accountable in accordance with international law uh, for its violations of human rights and war crimes. Um, and, and that's the basis of how this will change. And if until that day, things will carry on the way they are, sadly. I mean, so the, the reason I mentioned how courageous your work is, Betzalem's work is, is you have, I suppose, to be frank, become more embattled within Israeli society. I don't know if that's an unfair way of describing I mean, there's been, there's always an anti-war and anti-occupation movement, but it's, it's, it's much smaller than it, than it, than it used to be. Um, so I'm just wondering from your perspective, I mean, internationally, you've seen Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International join with Betzalem in, in, in describing apartheid in Israel. So there's obviously been that particular shift. But in terms of what's happening within Israeli civil society, what kind of prospects you see of links between those in the West um, and peace activists in Israel as well, of course, with pa the Palestinian people? I mean, it, where do you see things at the moment standing in that regard? And what would you, what kind of demands and or, or links would you like established? Well, it's, uh, it's a question I think about all the time, right? What is our role as Israelis opposed to our government's policies, Israelis who see the only future and this obviously relates also not simply to um kind of like the occupation but to the the nakba the, right the, the entire long-term history of our region so as israelis who think the only possibility for good future for all of us right the future of 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 uh dignity and security and safety and freedom for all Israelis and Palestinians living in this region is a future where these issues are dealt with and our government's actions are changed, right, are stopped. So as I said, I think about it all the time. I think that for me, you know, um, the essential thing is to acknowledge, first of all, that we as Israelis opposed to the occupation and apartheid. And as, you know, B'Tselem, you know, as an organization, we made uh, this statement about Israeli apartheid over a year ago, but we should also, first of all, acknowledge that we're following in the footsteps of Palestinian uh, human rights organizations and activists who have been talking about this issue far longer than uh, Israeli groups have. Uh, so first of all, acknowledging that and acknowledging that uh, their experiences and their voices matter, uh, and then working out how we as Israelis can utilize our specific privileges um, in a way that would be uh, beneficial to raise awareness and to talk about these issues, but without replacing Palestinian voices. And I think this is something we're all uh, trying to kind of like work out, right? Um, I think the second thing is that the, the conversation is nowhere near uh, complete, right? The conversation about apartheid and about how uh, this regime, and I'm talking deliberately in a very broad sense, uh, the regime that we Israelis, our government, applies throughout our region between the river and the sea, utilizes, uh, you know, systematic violence in order to perpetuate itself. This uh, conversation needs to be continued because very often, if we only, um, you know, talk about these cases through the prism of investigations and of law enforcement and all the rest of it, uh, then we're always bound to be kind of like focused on something like, you know, a ballistics test or a police investigation or the minutia. And I'm not discounting them, right? They're absolutely critical, but it also has to be seen in the broader context of how you control so many millions of people, uh, deny them uh, rights on a daily basis for years. You have to do it through the use of violence and impunity. So this, I think, is something that we are always trying to talk about, right? To kind of like discuss the broader picture. And I think maybe finally, I totally agree that um, our role as Israelis is also to uh, to talk to people who would listen to us, uh, you know, from the international community and, and, and tell them that, that of course it's their role to discuss these issues with their politicians and change this, uh, you know, equation where being critical with Israeli human rights violations as with Israeli apartheid is kind of like a, a risk that politicians in the West are taking because they'll you know, end up being accused of anti-Semitism or, or otherwise. Uh, we want to make it a different equation, right? We want it, uh, politicians to understand that they will ultimately, uh, you know, from the moral perspective, feel the need, the imperative to be critical of these violations, but also understand that it will not uh, destroy their chances, right? That they will be treated, uh, you know, that they will be protected from these false accusations of anti-Semitism. Certainly, the 
you know, absolutely while combating real anti-Semitism. So all of this, right, all of these different considerations that, uh, that public representatives, decision makers throughout the EU and certainly in the United States as well, have to be changed in order for us to move some sort of uh, some something on the ground here. Honestly, both of you really, really appreciate that. Absolutely fantastic and so enlightening um, and such a critical discussion to have. So I'm just so glad you could both both join it. It's such short notice. The work both of you do is obviously absolutely critical, um, more critical than ever. Uh, so huge solidarity, but thank you so much for joining us, both of you from uh, Tel Aviv and Ramallah. Thank, thank you, you and thanks for... Certainly, and thanks for bringing all of this uh, this up and talking about it, and using your voice to kind of amplify the story. That's an honour, and um, and uh, I'll obviously keep continuing to support both of you, and, and I know huge numbers of people are, are standing with you both. So thanks so much, and take care. Thank you. Thank Brilliant stuff. Very, very lucky to have both of them uh, joining us, explaining so clearly and vividly exactly what's happening on the ground at the moment. Now, just finally, uh, we're going to talk about the Labour Party. <laughs> Literally, the, the trauma of having to talk about Labour politics has taken its toll. Just saying, talk, just even mentioning it makes me uh, shudder slightly, but we've got to talk about it, so <laughs> might as well just embrace it. Now, um, in the leadership contest, Keir Starmer said, well, he said a lot of things. Um, and obviously the reality of what he's actually done are, uh, uh, on completely different planets. But one of the things he promised was that there'd be an end to the leadership imposing candidates in selections, all selections for parliamentary candidates, including by-elections. Um, and members, local members, would be able to choose freely their own candidate, which is I think pretty pretty reasonable. I think everyone was kind of happy with that as a commitment. It hasn't happened, uh, to say the least. Now, there's a by-election coming up in Wakefield, which is a constituency in Yorkshire, after the Tory MP was uh, convicted of um, of essentially child a, a sex crime linked to children, uh, and he's now that's now triggered a by-election. Um, now, Labour is obviously in the process of selecting its candidate, but it's been completely and utterly fixed. Uh, members aren't able to select their own candidates. The local candidates have been excluded uh, from the shortlist, so members don't get the right to choose who their candidate will be based on the, the, the full range of people who are standing uh, to ensure that the leadership's favourite candidate will will win instead. Now that's caused huge outrage amongst local party members. Um, the entire executive committee of the Wakefield Constituency Labour Party has resigned. Now let's talk to Andrew Dolan, who is from Momentum, the grassroots. Days you could call it the organised Labour Left Momentum. I'm sure you'll all be familiar with it. I am. Um, hey Andrew, how you doing? Yeah, good. How are you? Very good. Just talk us through. I mean, I just gave a quick summary there, but I mean. Just how fixed is this? I mean, just from, from one to yeah. fixed. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, it's not quite as bad as the famous shortlist of one up in Hartlepool. But what you did have was, you know, a number of strong local candidates from the sort of soft left through to the centre who were blocked first from the long list and now the shortlist. There's a shortlist of just two candidates that have gone to the hustings today, which are taking place up in Wakefield. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in reality, it goes exactly against what Keir Starmer promised in his leadership election, as you talked about, and that's local parties choosing candidates, local candidates who know the area, and also rule change that conference passed last year. Now, it's worth noting that that rule change in the event of snap elections would ensure that any panel that decides on the shortlist would have a majority of CLP members on that panel, and also mm -hmm. a couple of members from the NEC as well. Now, that was the first breach of the rule when the leadership decided to put together a panel with an NEC majority and ask only one member of the CLP to attend that panel. And then a breach of the principle and not allowing a good and wide selection of local candidates to get through to the hustings today, which is what the local party are quite rightly so outraged about. And what's important to remember on this, this really isn't a left right thing. If you look at the CLP section in conference last year, over 60 percent of CLP delegates voted in favour of this rule change, which we were supporting, mm -hmm. but it went well beyond your sort of core left vote, which mm -hmm. was around about 50% in the CLP 
delegate section in most of the votes. So you can see this really reaches across sort of broad stretches of the party's political wings and has kind of united quite a lot of people in anger. You've even got usually quite sort of middle of the road NEC members like Anne Black who've come out and criticised this and the fact they've ignored it now on three occasions. And, and obviously, as you pointed out, it just feeds into that narrative that Labour is led by someone who's extremely dishonest and has an extreme nervousness with party democracy. Now, hustings are currently taking place yeah. and we kind of see how that will develop. I think, I mean, obviously, most people won't be watching this live, but mm. it, it finishes at 2.30 uh, today, the 12 till 2.30. So they're currently, currently taking place. I mean, how do you see this playing out? Because obviously the leadership, I mean, it's interesting, actually, <laughs> if this had happened, I mean, I know this has become a well-worn thing to say. Mm. Obviously, mm. if something like this had happened to Jeremy Corbyn, we'd never hear the yeah. end of it. But actually, it has yeah. got actually some substantial media coverage because it's just just so flagrant mm. um so i don't i mean the ladies are just going to ride out aren't they that's that's their plan they'll, they'll try to i mean hosting now wouldn't be surprised if you start to hear reports of things coming out of that hostings that it got a bit tense um elliot chapel on labor list has just reported now that one of the block candidates is potentially threatening a legal challenge at how the process has been handled but they may get away with it in this instance, but I think the kind of knock-on effect it has in these local parties, and Wakefield's quite a vibrant local party, um, will be that these people simply won't come out on the doorstep. Now, this was something we found across the locals across the country, and as we know, Labour in England especially did very, very bad. And one of the major reasons there is that councillors just couldn't get canvases out on the doorstep. You had many, many instances of councillors being the only people doing their own canvassing. Mm. Now, we did our best at Momentum to mobilise people to key councils down in Worthing, Southwark, up in North Ayrshire, trying to put our organisational weight behind fantastic candidates doing fantastic things. But the apathy that's been created by the leadership's distrust of local people and local parties goes well beyond the left and I think will have a knock-on effect. And, you know, what you've got to remember with a seat like Wakefield, now, that, that whole area has a bit of a history for candidates being parachuted in under the Blair years. You had Mary Cray in Wakefield up until 2019. You've got Yvette Cooper not far away in Normanton and Pontefract. You had Ed Bowles, Ed Miliband, who's a little bit politically different, but the principle still stands. And even though someone like Mary Cray was a victim, ultimately, of, of the Brexit divide and how that carved apart Labour's base, there is a real sense of like anti-establishment feeling in an area like Wakefield. And parachuting these candidates in will not go well with the electorate. People like Mary Cray were never really that well liked in the constituency precisely because they had no organic roots in it. And Labour here, I think, is just replicating a problem. We start to see early signs of this, and if it continues, that will in the long term come back to bite it. Because it was a major problem under New Labour in terms of its legacy. That the whole generation of MPs who were completely talentless, promoted on the basis of loyalty or part of a clique, and in places like Scotland, that, that wreaked havoc on Labour's electoral chances. What you've got to remember, these candidates that are getting blocked, one of them went on Labour's own future candidates programme. This mm. is not, these aren't hard left candidates. You know, good example, Jack Hemingway, who's a well-respected deputy leader of Wakefield Council, who would broadly say is on the soft left. The fact that someone like him has been excluded tells you this is well beyond left and right. It's about a clique close to people around Starmer who want to reshape the party in the image of new Labour, regardless of what electoral damage that does. And I think you'll see a bit of backlash in the party after today, and you'll see a bit of backlash in the constituency. I mean, it's interesting because Hartlepool, uh, sorry, not Hartlepool, Hartlepool is what I'm going to refer to as a comparison, but in terms of Wakefield, this should be in the bag for the Labour mm. Party, uh, not least because of the circumstances in which the Conservative MP stood down. Um, and... But we saw in Hartlepool uh, where you got, in that case, it was just ludicrous. Mm. You got one, I mean, I did a, a, a video about it and including yeah. an interview with the candidate, uh, which was pretty cringe. I think everyone who's watched the interview would agree. I remember, um, yeah. Hmm, yeah. Uh, I felt sorry for him in the end, to be honest. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, that the, the issue is, I mean, the odds are still Labour would win Hartlepool just because, yeah. not, not Hartlepool, we've done Hartlepool, we'll win in Wakefield, unlike in Hartlepool, where Labour threw it away, but it will, I mean, it's just, it is self-inflicted damage, isn't it? Because as you yeah. say, people, getting people to knock and uh, if they're demoralised and, and also people in the community will not look upon this kindly, regardless actually of where they stand politically. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, We've always talked, we did talk under the last five, six years about the importance of like your ground game. Um, this is something we saw, you know, 
in Obama in the mid 2000s. We learned some of those lessons in the UK. We applied it under Jeremy. Now, the leadership probably think they can win elections by effectively going around the activist base and appealing to the media. But I think, or I would hope they got a nasty shot when they realized how willing the right wing press is to go after Starmer, despite the kind of gestures that he's made around crime, policing, immigration. They've absolutely hammered him over the last couple of weeks. And I think, you know, that, that's shown how willing they are to go after him despite his right wing drift. Now, when you're faced with that blockage, you've got to find a way around it. And having a ground game is one way of trying to do that. Getting boots on the ground, persuasive conversations, canvassing, trying to turn out your vote. And quite frankly, through self-inflicted episodes like this, they will not be able to turn people out. And again, we're not just talking about the left wing here. There's a lot of people in the party who aren't particularly that happy with the direction Starmer's going. But as long as they're able to, to campaign for good candidates, focus on local issues, do good campaigns, they will turn out and they will run really vibrant CLPs like you have in Broxtow. That's an example people often point to in terms of pioneering community organizing on the ground through the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. but, it, but it is absolutely self-inflicted. And yes, the kind of structural conditions are in favour of this being a Labour win. The collapse of the Brexit Party vote, which was a big factor in Wakefield, the government's unpopularity and the broader trend of quite a few of those sort of Labour to Tory switches or Labour to Brexit Party switches kind of heading back a little bit in Labour's direction. But the long-term damage of this, this goes back to what we're saying about the impact of kind of nodding dog candidates up in Scotland, will be that the party will become hollowed out. And, you know, there's a famous Irish social scientist, Peter Meyer, who talks a lot about the hollowing out social democratic parties. We saw the collapse of the Party Socialist in France and in other parts of Europe too, Greece especially. Now, under Corbyn, we did see a bit of a reversal of that trend, both in terms of membership, finances and also vote share. But it seems like the party leadership right now are intent on getting back on that road to ruin and driving the party into the ground because, you know, ultimately um, the, the trends aren't there for Labour to come anywhere near close to winning a general election. And these sorts of stitch ups that alienate local voters and local parties will only accelerate that trend. Just finally, David Barata asks, Labour's currently in the grips of Mandelson's authoritarian sock puppet. What can be done to combat this and why aren't MPs and unions speaking out about this? Yeah. Well, look, I'll speak not for MPs, but I'll speak on behalf of the organisation that I work for, Momentum. Now, we had a really good set of local elections. You know, we reckon we had 100 new socialists, that's Momentum members or allies and supporters, elected into office for the first time. That follows on from programmes that we have, our Future Candidates programme, Future Councillors programme, where we develop these people, give them the skills to navigate tricky selection processes, help them campaign. We'll now funnel those people into a, a councillor network to focus on community wealth building which we have about 300 members. Now, the reality is because the kind of proclivity of the leadership to suspend, to block, uh, to undermine left candidates, we've had to take a bit of a different strategic approach. So you're not seeing the big headlines about open selections and different candidates. We're working much more under the radar. Now, sometimes that means that people think as an organization, as the left, we're not quote unquote fighting back, but we're organizing on the ground. And these locals, I think, really justified our strategic approach. So our long-term approach in the next couple of years is to repeat that at the local level, make sure we get good socialists into office that want to pursue things like community wealth building. And we're looking at around, you know, a selection of seats across the country where we're working closely, we're offering advice, we're working with left networks to put in place the different building blocks we need to get these people selected. Now, look, it may well be that the leadership pursue a scorched earth approach in blocking every candidate getting through into parliament. But usually the biggest blockage to a leadership doing that's resource limitations, mm -hmm. just simply not being able to be over all seats. And you even saw that in the Blair Lears. Quite a few decent candidates in the long term got through. So we're focusing on candidate selections and base building. Now, sometimes that means we're not always shouting at Starmer or trying to get rid of him, as some of our base would like us to do. But we think this is a period of kind of um, recalibration, rebuilding for the left. And that's where our strategy is. And I think it, it paid dividends at the locals. Now, the reality is Starmer is going to be the Labour leader into the next election. Um, we're going to do our best to try and shape the party in the direction we would like to see it in terms of policy and candidates. But, you know, let's see what happens after 2024, because opportunities will open up, I think, at the national level again. Andrew, really, really appreciate that. I think that really no sets problem. out very clearly what's happening, obviously, in Wakefield, but also the broader context within the Labour Party. But um, as I said... Talking about the Labour Party is a emotionally exhausting yeah. process, but we've got to do it. <laughs> well, well it, it is, Owen, but look, you you in the Labour left 
pre-2015. And as difficult mm. as things are, the institutional strength we have, the yeah. organizations like Momentum, like Tribune, like TWT, podcasts mm. like this that aren't mediated by the mainstream media, we've got a reach and we've got a base that we, we didn't have then. And, and that's yeah. a huge foundation to build upon. Yeah, and I remember, but before 2015, I think it's really important, yeah. despite all the defeats and so when we faced, things have changed very substantially, and particularly amongst younger people. There's mm. far more of a kind of natural sympathy for the ideas of the left. That wasn't Definitely. necessarily the case Definitely. before. Andrew, really, really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Owen. Um, no problem. And take care, and I'll speak to you yeah, soon. Have a good Sunday. See you too, buddy. Take care. Great stuff. Uh, so it was obviously a big honour to have brilliant range of guests as ever. Um, we, as I've said, have got George Monbio. Uh, we've got a, an interview with him. He's just got a book called The Genesis. Let me just get the full title. Hold on. I'm just going to type it in. Oh, right, here it is. The Genesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. That's his brilliant new book. So we've got, um, yeah, a brilliant interview. Um, he was on great form. Great. Thanks, everyone. I'll be back, obviously, next week. I think I'm going to do have to do a pre-recorded show because I'm going to Valencia for a conference. It's all right for some. Um, so we'll work it out, though. Um, but we've got loads of stuff coming up. Uh, so, yeah, lots of love. Enjoy your day, your night, whenever you're listening to this, and I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Jones 84 Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.